0: Welcome back to the Mr Opinionated podcast. Joining me this month is Dr James Zabrowski, here to discuss what makes good film. Hello and welcome back to the Mr Opinionated podcast. It's the first time I'm broadcasting for a good month and a bit, so it's not nice to be back and I have a very distinguished guest for the return of the Mr Opinionated podcast. It's uh, Dr James Zabrowski. I said that right, didn't I? I did, yeah. I did, good. Um, who is a lecturer on film studies at the University of Hull. Would you like to um, tell us a little bit about yourself, James? Um,
1: yeah, so I teach I teach film and television studies at the university uh, with a focus on film style, film analysis, film history, uh, across, we well, right from the beginning of, of cinema through to the present.
0: Good, good, and um, you're so you're a, a doctor, not a professor, right? Because sure. yes, um, I interviewed, well, not interviewed. I did a podcast with Doctor Davis a few months ago, which I referred to as a professor in the description. I was afraid I got that wrong. Yeah. So yeah, so you're definitely a doctor, not a professor. That's good. Yeah. Um, so we're going to be kind of unpacking a rather um, complex question on this podcast. We're going to be asking um, what it is that makes a film good. Um, which, as I say, it's a very kind of loaded question to unpack when you take into consideration different opinions, different styles. So, what would you say as a whole is what makes a film good in your opinion? <laughs>
1: um, yeah, I don't think I don't think we can we can jump in and answer that question uh, very easily because I mean the obvious thing is the recipe that guarantees a good film. Um, so that same logic you can't go in with a list of features that you expect a film to have that you can then tick off and say yeah it has those things so it's a good a good film Um, but also I'm against the idea that whether a film is good or not is completely subjective I don't think that's true and maybe we can talk about that more as we as we go through Um, there are people who have proposed very general criteria for artistic evaluation. Um, there's, this, there's a famous three criteria which are unity, um, intensity and complexity. Uh, so if you think about those features, uh, they're a good guide to thinking about a film's achievements. It is a tough question.
0: Yeah, because I I find it difficult as a critic approaching films which on a on an achievement level a very good film, like for for instance I saw The Favourite earlier this year the film with Olivia Coleman that mm-hmm. won a few Oscars and I didn't really enjoy it, I found it to be a bit of a slog but kind of recognize within film and recognise that it is a good film, it's maybe just not to my taste so not didn't, yeah. didn't impress me as much as I was perhaps hoping
1: Yeah, I mean I think as as a critic, you have to be aware of and take into account your own taste. Yeah. Um, I mean, what would you say is is your is it a particular genre that you gravitate to, or is it uh, a particular period? Or
0: um, I don't really have a particular genre. I think I'm a fan of particular genres. I'm always willing to give new ones a try. Um, I'm just always more focused on story kind of the narrative and the characters as the positives Mm -hmm. as opposed to kind of how it's shot how it looks its visual effects this kind of thing a lot of of films will get praised for looking particularly nice but the story and the characters are a bit lacking and that's kind of what I would focus on more like like when Alita Battle Angel was first released I published a piece on my website and decrying that James Cameron was basically talking up its Amazing sound and projection, mm-hmm. and he wasn't mentioning its story or characters. He was just saying how it looks, and to me, that that isn't really a factor in what makes a good film, in in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, it's always nice for a film to look good. I would rather a film look really nice than it just be a completely black screen with characters like silhouettes talking. But I don't think it is what defines a film as good.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one way of sort of characterising what you're saying is that um you're sort of throwing in your lot with most popular filmmaking uh where story really is at the centre of everything Mm -hmm. so everything should serve the story um there's no point having fancy style if it doesn't somehow increase the viewer's engagement with with the story Mm -hmm. and that's that's the centre of it um of course there are sort of other filmmaking traditions that that try and put story a bit more to one side well documentary obviously because it's not fiction um but things like like art cinema uh, which decenter the story or even things which go even further and sort of really challenge the viewer to construct a coherent story when perhaps there isn't one Jean-Luc Goddard is sort of the classic example of this of, of a filmmaker who's trying to disrupt sort of the normal way in which in which you watch films
0: yeah and the different kind of approaches like art cinema is some some films within that realm are kind of are making films for an I don't want to say they're not making it for an audience because obviously that these things have an audience but mm. they're they're making it as more of an artistic expression of what can be done with just the Engaging yeah. with audiences yeah. at times,
1: and and the point that given the topic of our conversation that really needs making is there are lots of bad art films. <laughs> 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 um, generally, generally speaking, you know, a bad art film will often be bad because it's pretentious or because yeah. it's boring. Um, a bad story film, we might think it's bad because we don't believe that the characters would behave like that in that situation, mm-hmm. or. Um, you know, it, it it relies too much on stereotypes or cliches or something like that. Um, so yeah, th- and th- that's about judging a film on its own terms in the way that it wants to be judged. And you get these interesting cases like Psycho, for example, Hitchcock's Psycho, um, that's really straddling that that boundary between sort of conventional classical storytelling and something more disruptive. Or more recently, a film like Black Swan, which um, if you read it as kind of a, a a typical sort of melodrama, it's really over the top. But if you read it as, as an exploitation film, mm-hmm. it's amazing. And I think Black Swan is amazing.
0: Yeah. In in the way that you mentioned, you don't think films are subjectively go- good. Mm-hmm. Do Do you think they're that a film can be subjectively bad at the same time <laughs> for instance The Room or Plan 9 from Outer Space
1: well I think The Room is a really interesting case I've never seen Plan 9 from Outer Space obviously I know it by reputation I think The Room is it's objectively bad in the sense that we can tell that it doesn't know how to fulfil some of the basic conventions mm-hmm. of film storytelling it doesn't know how to end scenes it doesn't know how to write um sort of naturalistic dialogue it's everything is implausible uh, over the top and so yeah. it's a hugely enjoyable film oh, definitely um, yeah and and uh, i wrote an article with with a friend where we were looking at the idea of so bad it's good and what we were suggesting is what you're saying when you watch something like The Room is not that it's so bad that it's good you're not overturning the judgement it's so bad that it's enjoyable mm-hmm. uh, and that's a different thing you're kind of confirming the badness in every thing that you're doing with, with the film but that doesn't mean that it's it's not an enjoyable film
0: yeah I think one of my my favorite things about the room is the flower shop scene, where everything just seems to be completely out out of order. Not mm. in the, even the the, the, the dialogue. when he goes in and strips the dog. Yeah, the dial- yeah. dialogue completely makes no sense. It does. You're, yeah, you're right. <laughs> everything's in the wrong order. Yeah, it, it's it, it's it's basically like what you would expect of kind of a, a how not to do it mm-hmm. sort of film. Like you would watch the room and and, and take lessons on how not to make a film yeah. from what Tommy, Tommy Wiseau was doing. of course, talking about good films you have to take into account different people's tastes, like a lot of people who won't enjoy what we consider to be great films such as A Schindler's List or An Amelie, a a kind of artistic film because they would much rather go see the latest blockbuster Mm -hmm. maybe for instance because there does exist a casual audience for cinema who may just enjoy their Popcorn films,
1: yeah, um, and then we get to. You would then ask the question: Okay, how can you make judgments about relative achievement between films within that that bracket? So, um, what make if we think that Avengers Endgame is a great uh, blockbuster, then what makes it so? What does it do? Because there are still if you put yourself in the perspective of the filmmakers you know there are hugely gifted people working on these films so they look as razor sharp as they do and that every narrative beat is matters um, that's true more true of some blockbusters than others mm-hmm. uh, but blockbusters will often be extremely sort of polished and carefully crafted at least
0: I yeah um, I mean Avengers Endgame I was a very big fan of because I've kind of followed the MCU mm-hmm. from the beginning and yeah, superhero films are sort of my um, critic guilty pleasure if you like. Yeah. Um, so uh, Avengers Endgame actually made it straight into my top, top 25. Right, okay. 25. It, it was in Infinity War and then it, Endgame overtook it because uh, it took a lot of risks in terms of being a blockbuster. Um, first of all it being three hours long was I think a big risk to pitch it to mm. a casual audience being that long because your usual audience for the films are kind of like films that are no more than two, two hours long yeah. and and of course it had the benefit of having the the deep storyline that goes back 11 years to to work with it really pays off if you had an investment in that blockbuster so in in that way it does but then you have films which in have everything they need to succeed and I kind of mention this on almost every podcast, but if you look at the Transformers films, which have every reason there is to be successful and to be, well, not successful, yeah. but to be good, yeah. and they this they, they still really, really aren't.
1: Although Bumblebee um, was pretty good, I
0: thought. Bumblebee was the first enjoyable Transformers film I've ever seen, but yeah. w- when you're talking in terms of the Michael Bay Transformers <laughs> right. films, I mean, Michael Bay makes films like he has saucepans for hands, to be fair. And yeah
1: so what's at work there what, what do we think is what's the problem
0: Um, I I tend to think that his his view is very skewed when he's making films he he makes films I think for his own tastes as opposed to yeah the o- audience because you you can always characterise a Michael Bay film they'll have ethnic stereotypes they'll have lots of shots of American flags they'll have lots of explosions and it just seems to serve up the same thing time and time again
1: yeah yeah and and all these things are kind of they're almost sort of ideological political reasons moral reasons for not liking a film and and there's sort of aesthetic badness in it. they're so bombastic and um yeah but there's no sense of sort of subtlety or or kindness or anything like that in the Transformers movies, really. Mm-hmm.
0: And he, he doesn't seem to grasp that the reason someone would go see a Transformers film is for the Transformers. Mm. He the, the, There always tends to be a really uninteresting human character yeah. who have really <laughs> uninteresting problems. <laughs> and the, the, the focus is never on the giant robots having the fight, which is what we're all there to see. It's always on the humans that we don't care about. Yeah. Because we, we're never given a chance to care about them because they're not interesting enough.
1: Although it's funny, I went to see Bumblebee with with my son and um, he 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 wanted more fights, more robot fights. I guess, but that's Bumblebee, isn't it? Where the um, the sort of the human storyline is is even more developed. But yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, why why do we go and see Transformers movies?
0: And it's a similar kind of thing with the Godzilla film that Mm. that just came out of Godzilla King of the Monsters, which was kind of lambasted by critics. I I think for reasons that critics are always going to dislike a film like Godzilla to to, to be honest but as I say it's a similar thing no one goes to see a Godzilla film to watch humans talking, they go to see a Godzilla film to watch Godzilla fight something
1: and that's the thing isn't it, humans talking it's almost impossible to get away from if what you're doing is telling a story, so Mm. the trailer and the advertising for blockbusters will focus on spectacle, special effects because that's that's the wow Mm. and then in order to get people to so it's not just a, a light show for two hours. There has to be story, there has to be characters. Mm-hmm. And the problem for the blockbuster is to sort of reconcile those those two things.
0: Yeah. There was a, a good quote from uh Mark Kermode book that I read read the other week. It says um, blockbusters have every reason to succeed, so why are they still why are some some of them still You yeah. know they they have Money and talent behind them, so why can't they make more of an effort to be good rather than just because they, they know they're going to make their money, and that's probably what's yeah. most dangerous about films is when they know they make their money, so they can pretty much make any, yeah, anything. Yeah, what's the incentive almost?
1: Yeah,
2: yeah,
0: yeah. So I, I think the onus is on blockbusters to be better than they they, they are.
1: Yeah, a lot of the times. Yeah, it's just obviously hard to uh, to sort of find a way of of producing that outcome. Yeah seems like there will always be bad films <laughs> Yeah,
0: but if there weren't bad films then I wouldn't have much to write about that's so. true yeah
1: and and you know as there is there is definitely a, a pleasure sort of a savage pleasure sometimes in, in writing the takedown review
0: oh yeah um, I sometimes get more excited when I, when a film starts to lose me than when I start to get excited yeah. by a film
1: yeah you, it's like you smell blood and yeah. you
0: sort of pounce I mean the last one that I happened with was um, Hellboy Right. Yeah. Um, from about ten minutes in, I, I, I just thought this is garbage, and it just got worse and worse and worse. And I, I was writing the review in my head as I went yeah, along. Yeah,
1: And I it's a similar thing. I I tend to be driven. I'm not a regular reviewer, mm-hmm. but when I often when I feel moved to to write a review, it's when I'm watching a film that's kind of at the at the arty end of the mainstream. Mm-hmm. But I think that it's it's a pretentious failure. Um, mm-hmm. So Arrival was one example of that. Calvary was another, mm-hmm. where I kind of got annoyed with the film and then wanted to write about why I was annoyed. I should add that I think the the critic's most uh, noble responsibility is to explain why great films are great. Yeah, uh, That's harder to do. Um, oh, and it's definitely. Got yeah. it,
0: it. It's so easy to write about why a bad film is bad mm. and to make jokes about a bad film but it's all the more difficult to create the same level of critical analysis with a good film and explaining why it's good yeah, beyond right. just repeating yourself for the same yeah. which is why um, my, some of my reviews of the good films tend to be a bit shorter than the ones of the bad films so I find more things to say when it's bad yeah. than when it's good
1: and in the case of um sort of popular what's sometimes called classical filmmaking the measure of a film's success is is how n- not how well it resists analysis but the way that everything just feels just right you yeah. know nothing obtrudes it's a perfectly crafted object so it's kind of it's got a smooth surface and it's hard to hard to penetrate Critically,
0: one of the, the more recurring things that I find with modern film is um how much you could cut from a film and it still makes sense yeah. like there's a, i always find in a lot of modern films there's a lot of scenes i would have cut yeah. and it wouldn't have lost anything they, they just tend to go on for a bit too long nowadays and I, I have no issue with the film being long as long as it merits the runtime
1: that's right yeah i think all things being equal the ideal length for a film is like 85 minutes Really? Yeah, I love I love a film in sort of the eighty five to ninety five minute bracket. Mm-hmm. Obviously, if it's longer and, and as you say, it earns its length. That's fine. Yeah, but yeah, I like a. Nice Although uh, I
0: do like a, when I look at a film listing on the cinema website to say ninety minutes because the, then I know I'll be in and out within exactly. Yeah, yeah.
1: And... <laughs> and get on with the rest yeah. of your life.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but that being said, so some of my. My favorite films are two and a half to three hours long. And um, mm-hmm. my 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 very favorite film from the my top twenty five listers are like closing on three and a half hours. So which film is that? The
1: Godfather. Godfather, right? Yeah. Is it really that long?
0: Um, I'm not sure if it's the Godfather, Godfather Part Two that's three and a half hours. I think yeah. it's Part Two, and the Godfather is three hours. Okay. But they're they're both long watches, but they don't feel like long watches. Mm-hmm. Like that that three and a half hours feels like a two and a half hour film because you're So engrossed in what's going on on the screen, yeah, but we'll get to that later. So, you being an academic and and a a doctor of film, there will be certain things that you look for that maybe a casual audience turns out that you impress you in terms of a film being good from your perspective.
1: um yeah, I mean, again, this this partly comes back to person. So, you might expect someone who teaches like this. I I really value um, subtlety, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not saying that I think every film should be subtle, uh, and more subtlety won't necessarily make uh, every film better. Uh, but subtlety is something that I just particularly value. Mm-hmm. And, and partly that's because it's something that that uh, emerges when you when you watch films many times, mm-hmm. which um, is sort of a epidemic. It's part of what you do, uh, and and complexity as well, uh, and the ability of the film to to have competing uh, sort of pulls and elements that it manages to satisfactorily. Reconcile. Uh, Robin Wood, probably well one of one of the greatest film critics. He put it well at the start of one of his books, Personal Views, where he talks about um, a balance between simplicity and complexity. Uh, so, a film, there's no point in it being complex if it's a complete mess. There mm-hmm. has to be that sense that the complexity has been mastered by an intelligent process of of shaping and refinement and he gives the example of a nursery rhyme which is perfectly coherent but it's not complex so mm-hmm. we don't really register it as a major achievement but something that can achieve coherence whilst at the same time being very complex that's an achievement worth worth celebrating mm. so it's probably about putting yourself in the position of the filmmaker and thinking about the process that the filmmakers have to go through in order to, to get coherence to emerge from, from all of this
0: and when you talk about subtlety and complexity, it kind of brings back to the point that you made earlier of it risks feeling pretentious if mm. if it's yeah too much of that
1: yeah that's right
0: um and that happens quite a lot in art films and on that particular side of film ma- making is it if I if if I start to feel a film's a bit pretentious, it might lose me a lot quicker than yeah you know so. Yeah that was another thing with The Favourite that kind of turned me off was the way it was shot and presented it just felt to me like it was a, it, 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 it was enjoying itself a lot more than the yeah, audience yeah. was
1: a film that's kind of enjoying itself too much is, is a problem and then you kind of I think you do have to sometimes sort of counteract yourself, you have to like be aware that maybe you've got a very sensitive pretentiousness uh, radar mm-hmm. and sometimes it can get set off and then you can you can get in a bad mood and be against the film and perhaps that's unfair and you have to sort of like, okay, I'll be patient I'll, I'll give it, I'll give it another chance. Uh, so you have to sort of let it have a bit of patience with it. Um, one one of someone who taught me, uh, Victor Perkins, he had this famous thing called uh, the first shot Test mm-hmm. and he would say that you can often tell, whether or not a film is good uh, by its first shot, like, does it pass the first shot test? Cause clearly, it's you know it's your introduction to the film. It's one of the most important um, parts of a film. The ending probably being in some ways the most important. Um, and you can tell by watching the first shot and thinking about how how the film has chosen to to introduce you. Can you remember? I think I can. Been a long time since I've seen it. What the first shot of The Godfather is, um, isn't it Don Corleone talking? Yes, the, it's the it's him talking like, the wedding day, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's quite effective because it puts you right straight away into the into the seat of power and shows Don Corleone doing his thing, but the surrounding context is that he's celebrating uh, his daughter's wedding day, yeah. And as <laughs> so uh, I'm saying that, I'm thinking of um. Uh, Zootropolis. Zootropolis, Yeah,
0: (laughs) I I loved that film too. Yeah, Zootropolis is brilliant. Yeah, that was. um, I was talking to one of my fellow film loving friends the other day and saying that people don't tend to realise how complex Disney Pixar films Mm. can be. Like they they can present complex themes aimed at children that children will eventually understand that as they grow up and adults can appreciate at the same time yeah. and that's kind of the real magic of those films for me
1: absolutely and I think you know those like Zootropolis uh, Wreck-It Ralph Frozen these Inside Out another
2: Inside good one Inside
1: Out yeah all amazingly um, carefully constructed intensely pleasurable brilliant films yeah perfect examples of, of what I would call classical filmmaking
0: mm-hmm. but uh, at the same time, I'd, I discussed with Dr. Davis a few months ago, the animation area of Hollywood is often quite disrespected by the who you consider the establishment as just being mm. films for kids, when, as we've just said, they can be so much more, more than that. Yeah. And they can be as good a film as a live-action film.
1: Yeah, I mean, it seems like the Academy Awards, the Academy it excludes an awful lot of people, doesn't it? Yeah.
0: Um, the The best animated feature award just seems like a consolation prize to me. Yeah. Like a ghetto. Yeah, there are there are so, so many good animated films that could qualify for best picture, mm, but are left absolutely. out by virtue of being animated. I
1: thought um, *Into the Spider-Verse* was also absolutely brilliant.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I'll it agree. It's pro- probably one of my favourite Spider-Man films. Come yeah, it. absolutely.
1: And the closest I've seen a film come to in its sort of unfolding, capturing sort of the movement of a comic book.
0: Yeah. I I wasn't awfully struck by the animation style when I first saw it in the trailers, mm-hmm. but I grew to like it as I watched the film. because yeah. It just kind of seemed a bit jerky and mm-hmm. out of sync to me when I watched the trailer. But it made more sense as you went and watched the film. Because it is just like... A comic book has sprung to life in front of your eyes,
1: definitely,
0: and um, that's the that's the kind of magic of it. So, what do you do? You think there is any one genre for you that would stand out as kind of having a better chance of being a good film from the outset?
1: (laughs) Um, Not, not really. Although I'll sort of add a few comments. I think. One of one of my favourite genres is what we might very broadly call the Hollywood melodrama, mm-hmm. and by that I I mainly mean films made in the forties and the fifties mm-hmm. by directors like Max Ofles, um, Douglas Sirk, Minelli, uh, Nicholas Ray. Although I'm a bit less fond of Nicholas Ray, um, films centred on. The domestic life mainly of central female characters, that's kind of, that's just an area that I'm particularly interested in and I think it does tie in with some of the great achievements of Hollywood filmmaking during its sort of studio era um, I also think westerns are fascinating because as, as Robert Warshow and Andre Bazan pointed out, because so many westerns were made there is a real appeal to connoisseurship in the genre. So, it'd be, you know, the same way that people can, can admire a really fine wine, mm-hmm. uh, westerns encourage that kind of viewership because once you've seen a hundred westerns, you're so sensitive to all of the different ways that you can develop this sort of plot, have these nuances and so on. Um, so I think... but. You know there are loads of really terrible westerns yeah. and, and loads of really terrible uh, women's pictures or female melodramas uh, but but there are also wonderful examples of, of those genres
0: there are certain genres that have different layers and westerns is one of them, there's the, the kind of westerns that you'd find at like 3 o'clock on ITV4, the hmm. kind of mid table western and then there's your kind of higher end Clint Eastwood John Wayne western that were that are still considered to be classics today, like the original True Grit with John Wayne and some of the, the Man with No Name, truly. Mm. Those are as, as westerns that still stand out in the mind, but there are so many that just kind of make a, a primordial soup of westerns where they're just kind of merged together into one yeah. amorphous mass. Yeah.
1: But again, I'd, I think, um, and this is really interesting actually, that Andre Bazan was kind of against westerns that were too self reflective and too aware of themselves as westerns um so he was he was quite a big fan of of stagecoach uh for example um th- there was the idea in the 50s that that western <clears throat> kind of became afraid to just be a western uh, and and that the classical period was was when ford was sort of making stagecoach my darling clementine and so on so i think you know that those, the kind of westerns that are shown on, on ITV in the middle of the day, like Rio Bravo or whatever, or Wagon Master, mixed in there are some of the truly great westerns, I would say.
0: Mm-hmm. But uh, there's also kind of modern western films that stand up to scrutiny. So there's Unforgiven, mm-hmm. which is uh, 1992, so it's not as modern as other ones. There's uh, the remake of True Grip, which yeah, I. Which is pretty good. Which is good. There's Knock um, Country for Old Men.
1: Yeah, yeah. As well. Yeah, kind of a partly. Yeah, I suppose it is, it's like a border western. I suppose.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah. And um, the the one that was on Netflix last year, the Ballad of Bust, Buster Scruggs, the yeah. Cohen film, they they just seem to seem to have an affinity for western films that they kind of return to every so often. Mm. So the the appeal is still there, and that's the thing with the genre is certain ones will always have an appeal.
2: Yeah.
0: As I was saying, the thing about layered genres, there is also a lot of room in comedy for hit and miss. There's, mm. there's a lot more f- comedy films that miss than hit, I find. And, anyway, because obviously sense of humour is subject to one person. And there are a lot of really bad co- comedy films, most of which start Adam Sandler
2: yeah.
0: uh, or Rob Schneider or any of Adam Sandler's friends. But Although Adam
1: Sandler has made a series of great movies.
0: He has, just not for a while.
1: Yeah, he occasionally pulls one out of the bag Yeah, got the mayor of its stories was really good
0: it, it, it's, it's always really surprising when Adam Sandler comes back in anything half decent after yeah. everything bad that he's done in the last few years I
1: have great affection for uh, the wedding singer as well yeah it's a really good film
0: um, I quite liked Punch Drunk Love which yeah. I think Amazing. We, we watched in one of our modules at uni
1: we did I'm teaching it again uh, this coming year actually yeah
0: and I, I quite like um Rain over me, oh, I've not
1: seen that one
0: as well, which is another one of his more dramatic tens. I think yeah. that's really good. But um, as I say, there's a lot of comedy films that miss, and a lot of the ones that stick in the mind are the ones that kind of go a bit further into sur- sur- surreality. Um, mm. One of my favorites is Monty Python and the Holy Grail. That's that's one of my favorite comedy films, as well as Blood, Blazing Saddles, and a lot of Mel Brooks films. Yeah. So a comedy that. Sticks its neck out to be something different. Mm. Always yeah. sticks in the mind more than just your run-of-the-mill comedy with kind of throwaway one-liners and
1: yeah. I I really like um, it, it's comedy which relies for its effect on characters sort of transgressing social boundaries, and that's developed into sort of what we might think of as the comedy of awkwardness and mm-hmm. things like the office or Kirby enthusiasm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. but there's a less excruciating form of that comedy it's basically the comedy of jane austen novels as well mm. where the humor arises from often from the mism- mismatch between a person's social situation and what they understand their social situation to be um and the ways in which people annoy and, and get get on each other's nerves. Well, that's that's the province of sitcom, isn't it? Like Step and Son. Yeah. Or, or any series like that.
2: Yeah,
0: and you, you mentioned The Office, and kind of Ricky Gervais is a rather div- divisive mm-hmm. figure. Um, obviously The Office was his first big breakthrough, but he's kind of made a career on that comedy of awkwardness, as you put it. He made um Derek, which is very much a comedy of awkwardness. Yeah. And his new series Afterlife, which I really liked mm-hmm. as well. That was. Kind of rooted in comedy of awkwardness as well. Yeah. So maybe there's a kind of speciality to that kind of because uh, Peep Show springs to mind as well. That's, that's, that's yeah. Very
1: similar. I think. Um, I mean, The Office is is great. I, I've not seen much of the American Office, but um Your Enthusiasm uh, just absolutely kills me. Um, yeah, I love the way that that show just endlessly turns the screw on. You know. Uh, an awkward social situation Mm I just love it
0: yeah can't get enough of it now I'll also say that um, Ricky Gervais is a a really underrated writer Mm. of television Um, I recently rewatched Derek in in its entirety which kind of got mixed reviews at the time but there's a a layer of complexity to Mm. the characters he creates that you just wouldn't expect from someone like Ricky Gervais to write characters of that complexity but Mm as I say I find him to be very underrated as a writer yeah and as a director as well to be honest because he obviously directs his own stuff and manages to mix in different styles and presentations yeah yeah so, Um, are there any other genres that stick out in your mind as producing pr- producing more good films than bad or that
1: I would say that um Musicals mm-hmm. are a really good way of testing some of sort of the purely. It, musicals let you do things that you can't do in any other genre, because mm-hmm. it's. Uh, I mean, in any other medium, so you know you can't have a musical novel, really. Oh. I'm, I'm sure there are examples of people trying to do this, but because it's all about movement, sound, image, and those things. Coming together, um, so in a way, a musical is a place where you can showcase films' possibilities to their fullest extent. In one way of one way of thinking, which again doesn't mean that that it means that all examples of the genre will be good, but it does mean that it can achieve effects that are very special and particular.
0: I mean, musicals kind of consist of a lot of classical Hollywood, don't they? I mean, yeah, you, I mean, yeah. One of the first things you you think when spring to mind when you think of classical Hollywood films is the old studio mint musical Indeed. You you singing in the range, or you know, you wizard of oz that kind of thing. That's so, right. Something which is kind of make, kind of made a small comeback with La La Land a few years ago, which was made very much in the vein of an old hollywood mint musical.
1: Yeah. And I mean, Damien Chazelle he also he's very indebted to to the French musical tradition as well. Mm-hmm. Um I mean musicals are always sort of making a comeback Um, we had Moulin Rouge in sort of 2001 yeah, it was Great Showman a few years ago Great Showman, yeah Um, and you know occasionally you even had uh, sort of Dancer in the Dark, Lars von Trier's weird sort of anti-musical so yeah musical, kind of like the western it's now in it's afterlife period Mm -hmm. where it's no longer it's no longer the case that studios are churning out Five or six of these films a year, yeah, but everyone still knows or thinks they know what a musical or a weapon is.
0: Although, there are there does always seem to be at least one or two musicals come out every year, yeah. I mean, this year we've got Rocket Man, which has just been released, yeah. I
1: mean, so sort of the biopic. um yeah, it sort
0: of leans into the musical genre, doesn't it? And, and there's also Cats, which is coming out this year Cats, as well. Right, yeah, yeah. There were, always seems to be one around Christmas. Mm. I mean, nowadays because there was Greatest Mamma Showman of course. was that on Christmas. Um, last year, Mary Poppins returns was that around Christmas? Yeah. So maybe the the, the seeing the market there for a musical near Christmas yeah, for possibly. kind of a kind of a nostalgic feeling around mm. Christmas and seeing all the musicals because that, that's what's usually on television. You sound the music and things like that. Yeah, Big Music all... Louis, great Christmas musical. Yeah, um, I was going to say It's a Wonderful Life, but that's not a musical. Oh, it's <laughs> 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 it's a it great is a, film, is film.
2: yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. yeah. So, so, speaking of great films, I think show will uh, bring us onto on our uh, personal list of our mm-hmm. best films. So, I'm going to let you detail yours first before I move on to mine. So, <laughs> what have you got for us?
1: Well, um, yeah, you asked me to do this, and I, I came up with, I didn't try and do a top ten. I mm-hmm. mean, I've tried to do top tens before, but I just right. wrote the films that that immediately sprung to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, Shall I just tell you what they are?
0: Uh, yeah, uh, then then we can kind of dis- discuss them after you've yeah. told us.
1: Well, it's funny that you mentioned um, *It's a Wonderful Life* because that is that is one of my favourite films. Is that one of your? Yeah, possibly my sort of my desert island film. You know, if mm. I had to watch one film endlessly. Although the the thought of watching *It's a Wonderful Life* on a desert island with no one else seems a bit a bit depressing, yeah. Uh, but yeah, *It's a Wonderful Life*. Um, you know, James Stewart at the height of his powers, Frank Capra at the height of his powers, mm-hmm. uh, in in that post-war moment in Hollywood uh, before it's kind of like the last the last moment before the studio system sort of disintegrated.
0: It's amazing to find a film as well that. Um, retains its appeal so far into the future. Mm. Like the I watched it for the very first time last Christmas and it still felt yeah. like a magical movie for Christmas, you know.
1: And it's 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 one of those films like The Shawshank Redemption that mm. that has has become more beloved as time has gone on. Yeah. I mean it was it was a big deal when it came out and it was nominated for a series of Academy Awards but it didn't win them. It maybe won A few sort of technical prizes, but The Best Years of Our Lives was the film that went away with all the Oscars. Uh, But then, partly because it it was shown endlessly on on like TCM, on on US TV, Mm -hmm. it it gathered its audience. Anyway, it's a wonderful life. Um, In terms of westerns, I probably pick 310 to Yuma. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a great that's,
0: that's a very good film yeah we watched it last we last did year, that we? that's the 1957 version yeah not the not the remake
1: that's right yeah yes um, yeah, it's very good yeah just a perfect tight story uh, where and a real sort of evolving relationship between one character who's clearly a good guy and one character who's the bad guy but isn't um, you know he, he, he reveals interesting layers of, of behaviour. Yeah. Um, no Voyager, a film starring uh, Betty Davis. It's, mm-hmm. it's about a, a woman who um, sort of escapes from her mother's rolling grasp and flowers into, into personhood. That's mm-hmm. a film I always go back to. Um, Cléo de Saint Cassette, which is a French film mm-hmm. by Agnes Varda. Who died earlier this year? Is very sad. Yeah, um,
0: isn't that the one that's Agnes from Five to Seven? That's.
1: Um, I think there might be a documentary Agnes from Five to Five to Seven. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Um, yeah, so that that's a film about a woman who's waiting for the results of a a doctor's test, mm-hmm. and it's shown in real time as she sort of waits for for the result, and it's it's set in and around Paris. Um, a great sort of document of Paris at that time, as well as being a great, a great story. Um, the Grand Budapest Hotel. mhm then That's the, the newest film on my list. Um, a film that, that I keep on going back to, and I absolutely adore. Um, Wreck-It Ralph. Wreck-It Ralph. I'll, I'll put that in there, as sort of a, the one of the recent Disney and Pixar films that I would pluck out as being my favourite. Partly because, um, I'm obsessed with the Super Nintendo entertainment system, so right. it kind of... It, it, it plays into to that side of me as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there has to be a Goddard film in there, uh, and I could pick Breathless, the Buddha Sufla, or Viva Savi, but I'd probably pick um, Va Bien*, which is a 1972 film mm-hmm. about a factory strike. Uh, and it, it's Goddard doing what Goddard does best, which is to to really challenge and confront the viewer to sort of think about the way that they go about things. And finally, I said Wonderful Life might be my, my Desert Island film, but I think if I if push comes to shove and I was asked to name my favourite film of all time, it would have to be Letter from an Unknown Woman, mm-hmm. directed by Max Offald, my favourite filmmaker, in Hollywood in 1948. Um, and it's it's a very delicately ironic film and it's not ironic in a way that it's making fun of the characters but it's ironic in a way that we can sense robin wood calls it the double narrative where we're always with the central character but because of the way the story is told we're shown possibilities and ways of seeing her world that she's unaware of Mm -hmm. um so it the things I was talking about before complexity subtlety and irony as well it's it's achieving all those things um, without without breaking its stride and becoming sort of modernist or disruptive which you know I'm happy for films to be modernist or disruptive but it's such a great contained achievement mm-hmm. um, so yeah but those would be my I think I named eight films there. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, it's, it's a, a a very varied list and um, one th- one thing thing that I noticed and you mentioned earlier was um the inclusion of a lot of kind of female led mm-hmm. films. What do you make of the kind of done um explosion in female led films?
1: Um I think it's great. I love um I love Greta Gerwig, both in front of and behind the camera. I thought mm-hmm. Lady Bird was great. Um we were just talking about Agnes Varda. She's mm. she probably the female filmmaker that, that I'm most invested in overall, but I also love um, Claire Denis, for example, mm-hmm. another French filmmaker. Um, Chocolat, her first feature film, is is a film that I always go back to. Um, Beau travail is is extremely interesting as well. So yeah, I think obviously it's 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 an entirely good thing. I yeah. actually just bought um, a BFI box set. Early women filmmakers, mm-hmm. um, which showcases some of the films that were made by female filmmakers, mainly directors in this box set, in sort of from the teens. I mean, the box set goes up to the 40s, but it's focused on the era before or the early days of features. Mm-hmm. Um, so, there's filmmakers like Lois Faber who made a really good suspense film called Suspense with Split Screen in mm-hmm. 1913, which is pretty impressive. Um, and um, uh, her name is Mabel Normand, who was a slapstick comedy actress who was important in the early stages of Charlie Chaplin's career. Mm-hmm. Um, she's brilliant as well. So, yeah. Yeah.
0: Because, uh, as you say, a lot of those female led films from the 40s and 50s, which shows that the phenomenon of uh, a female led film is nothing new mm-hmm. and kind of was always a successful model because a, a, a lot of the 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 fear was when the new wave of kind of female yeah. and in a certain way minority led films came along was that those kind of films didn't make money
1: yeah i think I think there are two issues here I mean Hollywood and other national cinemas has long been aware that you can sell pictures, films to a female audience, Mm -hmm. but most of the films that, from Hollywood from the 40s and the 50s that I love, they're all directed by men. Mm -hmm. Almost all of them are written by men as well. I can't off the top of my head think of um, an example of one of the films that I was talking about that's written by a woman. Um, In terms of giving women control of the filmmaking process, Mm -hmm. uh, that's been sadly a lot more rare. In, in Hollywood, uh, yeah. If you think about the proportion of female filmmakers, black filmmakers, whatever, I- in relation to the proportion of the entire population, mm-hmm. it's it's ridiculously low. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there've always been films for particular audiences. It's just a case of giving um, those groups control of, of the Can resources I mean, of film, giving
0: the power back to them as opposed to kind of. Being held over them by someone else, in a yeah,
1: way. Yeah, yeah. For, for some, for a white man to decide that it's a good idea to to make films for women, and it is a good idea. Yeah, <laughs> it's produced great films, but that's only part of the story.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, whoever you are, you should be able to have at least one film that reminds you of yourself, or that you can see yourself in. There should mm. be representation for whoever you are in in film. Yeah. I've always thought that it's important for someone to see someone who looks like them on screen, in a way of, of their own development, or someone who sounds like them. So,
2: yeah.
1: You know. And to see them as they would wish to be seen, so not in a a demeaning, yeah, kind of yeah. stereotypical yeah. role. Yeah.
0: Which, of course, we've come on still a long way to go in, in terms of films, but it's come on a long way. Yeah. In recent times. So um I've got a list of 25 from my yes. book so I'm not, I'm not going to go in in depth on all of them because we'd be here until tomorrow. So um this is my top 25 starting with Man on the Moon. Mm-hmm. Which, um Milos 1998 starring Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey, yeah. So I've never seen that Andy
1: film but, but I love the uh the REM song.
0: Yeah, yeah. there was a, a really good Netflix documentary last year about the making of really? it as well. Um about how Jim Carrey allowed himself to be overtaken by the, the, the Andy Kaufman persona yeah he just became Andy Kaufman Yeah, and just behaved terribly on set, yeah, there's yeah. so so many clips of him just behaving beyond reprehensibly and <laughs> but he gets away with it by saying he's being Andy Kaufman uh, then there's Les Miserables which is a musical which I mentioned earlier, Beauty and the Beast the 91 animated version mm-hmm. uh, Django Unchained yeah, Western film, film, Quentin Tarantino one of my favourite filmmakers Dead Poets Society mm-hmm. um, Peter Weir Peter Weir, yes, who I think he also made the, um, Truman Show Truman Show, yes mm-hmm. um, R- Rock, Robin Williams is one of my favourite act- actors right. um, I think um, vastly underrated as an actor
1: Yeah, he's very. He's a very good um, dramatic actor very mm. good in Insomnia, I thought
0: he has, he, he had tremendous range as well. Mm. He he had an ability to make people laugh, and roll around on the floor laughing, but also kind of hit an emotional core as mm. well. No, which, right. uh, number twenty, Rain
1: Man. Never seen it. Never but seen. Obviously, yeah. I know it. By yeah. Reputation. But, um,
0: again, it's an interesting acting showcase for Dustin Hoffman. Mm. Tom Cruise is a bit of a spare wheel at times, if I'm honest. but mm. <laughs> But he's just there for Dustin Hoffman, really. Uh, one floor over the cuckoo's nest, yeah. Which is again a Milo's Forman film, also mm-hmm. made *Man on the Moon*. So uh, it's a one for life. It's also on my list as well. Good um, *Avengers: Endgame*, mm-hmm. which, as I say, entered. Um, it was in *Infinity War* up until the week of the book going to publishing.
1: Which I think, inf- I think *Infinity War* is the better film, personally.
0: Yeah. I, 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 I like the payoff of end end game mm. like I think if someone were to edit them together and make them a more sociable length, then mm. it would be a perfect film to put together yeah because they're two sides of one complete story mm. uh, number sixteen is rocky yeah which is, uh probably my favorite sports film mm-hmm. of all time a perfect kind of underdog story wrapped up really nicely, and also a really good performance from 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 Sebastian Stallone yeah who. I said before, only ever seems to be able to when he's playing Rocky, (laughs) and any any other time he forgets how to act. Uh, Number fifteen is The Shawshank Redemption, yeah, which as you say gains popularity year by year. Uh, Number fourteen is Taxi Driver. Mm -hmm. Um, I think Martin Scorsese's run that he was on in in the late seventies is just beyond comprehension of how many good films he
1: he made in that particular period. I um, I watched First Reformed. I've seen it quite a few times recently. I've just bought that on Blu-ray. Actually, right, okay. Petrophone. Yeah, check it out. It's have Taxi Driver in your mind as you do so.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, number thirteen, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. There was um, I was wrestling in my mind whether to put that or Anchorman on the list right. because they're both <laughs> my my two favorite comedy films. But Monty Python had to take it in the end because because um, Meaning of Life and Life of Brian could have quite easy, easily also been on on the yeah. list
1: whenever I um, make lists of films for modules mm-hmm. I always end up looking at the list I've produced and think why did I not include comedies or musicals and sometimes I go back and work one in but often yeah. I don't
0: um, the kind of comedy film that I love is one that you can watch with your friends and just quote constantly mm. for the next week and just yeah.
1: kind of an Anchorman would be a good example of that yeah or The Big Wabowski exactly. yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, number 12 is The Lion King mhm I just bought my tickets for the remake, of which I'm I'm kind of on ten to hooks whether I'm going to enjoy it or not. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Number eleven, two thousand and one, at the Space Odyssey. Cool. Number ten, The Empire Strikes Back, Mm -hmm. the best Star Wars film. To
1: me, to me, the best Star Wars film. I think the Force Force Awakens is probably my favorite.
0: Force Awakens is really good. Um, I really like The Last Jedi as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm,
0: I'm in the camp that really enjoyed it because I think there was a lot of people complaining that the Force Awakens was too similar to the original trilogy, mm-hmm. and then people complaining the Last Jedi was too different. So right. you <laughs> can't really please people either way. Number nine is Dunkirk, Never seen Christopher that. Nolan film yeah. from a few years ago. Number eight is Pulp Fiction, which is another edition for Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. Number seven, Goodwill Hunting, another Robin Williams performance that won him the Oscar, yeah. quite deservedly. <laughs> uh, number six is Logan, the Wolverine film, right, three okay. years ago. Uh, number five, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, which is my favourite film of 2018. Number four is The Dark Knight, Batman no. film, to my mind the greatest comic book film that's ever been made, a superhero film. Number three, Schindler's List, number two, Forrest Gump, and number one, The Godfather. There we go. Mm -hmm. Um, I must admit that Schindler's List and The Godfather are films that I only actually watched for the first time recently. Oh right, okay. I I bought Schindler's List for the 25th anniversary Blu-ray edition, and um, a friend of mine had recommended it as kind of been the greatest thing since sliced bread, and you must watch this film; it's amazing. Mm. And I watched it and really enjoyed it, obviously because it came in at number three on my list, but. I still prefer The Godfather. <laughs> right,
1: <laughs> yeah. I am um, thinking again about sort of tastes, and as well as genres, sort of. I think national cinemas play a part in this. So, Hollywood, Hollywood is my first love, and mm-hmm. mainly Hollywood from nineteen thirty to nineteen sixty ish. Then my my second love is French cinema, with everything else coming. A very distant third I mean I love Bergman for example who, who's a Swedish filmmaker mm. I love Abbas Kirstami who's an Iranian filmmaker I love Pedro Armadovar who's a Spanish filmmaker and Alfonso Cuaron who started out in Mexico but moved moved to become a US filmmaker um, British cinema I've got kind of a complex relationship with um, a lot of it isn't good but some of it is, is wonderful um
0: British cinema kind of ebbs and flows, doesn't it? Mm. There are periods of time which it'll go through a real green patch, and then then it'll kind of drop out for a while and not really make any yeah. great suggestions of good films. Mm. I remember watching—I can't remember—it was on one of your modules at uni or another one, uh, *Fish Fish Tank*. Oh
1: yeah, which, yeah, I didn't. Which that. I
0: really liked. Um, I, I like British films that take a section of British life that can only happen in Britain and put mm. it onto film a lot of British films are about a society that could exist anywhere really whereas working class British life is is a kind of slice of film that Mm. you don't see too often which I don't think not enough great films are made from that section
1: yeah and I think when obviously I have to take responsibility for more than myself when I'm teaching film so I'm always asking myself Mm. have I got a diversity of films from different countries different times from different types of filmmakers sort yeah. of socially in terms of gender race etc mm-hmm. uh, i think that's a really important thing to, to think about
0: yeah as <laughs> as i said earlier it's, it's not only important for people to see themselves on screen but it's also nice to know that the person behind the camera mm. also looks like you mm-hmm. as you said earlier it, it's nice for a film for, to pick an example about black people is made by
2: someone with that yeah, yeah, I agree.
0: Because it's kind of as I was saying the other day. There's nothing worse than white man reggae. It's, it's kind of the same. <laughs> it's the same thing. There's not. There's nothing worse than a white man trying to tell a black man's story.
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's a very it's a very complex area. I think. Um, yeah, it, I don't know. It, it's very difficult. I think the key thing is one thing that is completely uncontroversial is that there should be um more diversity in the screen industries and in terms of what, what appears on screen um yeah that's what i would say and um one of my favorite films of recent years is um get up by, mm-hmm, by Hill. i'm going to be teaching that next next year um
0: have you seen Us by any chance? Or?
1: I haven't. I missed it at the cinemas. Um, it should be out on Blu-ray soon. Yeah, so I'm going to grab it.
0: I really enjoyed Us. Mm. Um, I'm not much of a horror-fishing There are only. S- I like smart horror films that kind of mess with your brain. Yeah. What? Well, what? I've always thought that what you can't see is scarier. Mm. So if, if you're just kind of. Showing me monsters and things popping out and going Blair, then I'm I'm, I'm not going to be interested. But if you're making me think
1: about, yeah. things I'm kind of similar. Um, horror isn't a genre that I sort of choose to to watch much. I do quite like teen horrors just because they're they're quite slick and snappy, like Scream. Mm-hmm. quite like, and and because I was I was a, a regular sort of teenage cinema going age in a bit of a golden era when. Scream the Scream movies were out. I know what you did last summer, that sort mm-hmm. of thing. I mean I say a golden age, they're not they're not pinnacles of film achievement, but they are very, very watchable. Um yeah, a little sort of cycle of films. I quite like Cabin in the Woods as well. I thought that was a good a good meta horror film. And I love Halloween. Halloween teaches really well the original. Mm-hmm.
0: Um yeah. The the thing with, with those is they're they always have a really good first instalment your Halloween your Friday yeah. the 13th and then they just sequelize until until there's none of the original yeah, yeah the, in right. fact I think Friday the 13th is the best example of that because it ends with Jason going into sp- just to the <laughs> maximum point of ridiculousness Yeah, yeah. after the first one.
1: Yeah, kind of, where can you go from
0: here? Yeah, you write yourself into a corner after a while. That's right. Until the, the film they did after that was, was um, Freddy vs. Jason. Right. So
2: yeah. they
0: wrote themselves into a corner and then well, we can't go anywhere else with this. We're just going to have to throw someone else in. Yeah. So. yeah. so horror films can always be hit and miss as well because, as, as I said, I went to go see um, Bright Bed the other week, right. a horror film, which... Um, did a lot of things in horror films that I'm not fond of um, I'm not fond of the jump scare because especially Cause it's cheap yeah it's cheap and yeah. when it, it's not earned it just makes me quite mad to be yeah. honest when you rather than trying to get inside my brain and kind of make me feel that there's something behind me that I don't want to look at you're mm. just throwing things at the screen and, yeah it's just a reflex it? yeah it and it, it's not scary it's startling This is yeah. what I was saying to someone else to the difference between being scared and being startled you, you can be startled by an animal jumping through your window yeah it yeah. doesn't mean that, it, that it's the marsupial and Stanley Cuckoo brick, you know yeah. it's <laughs> just startling and and that was the same there weren't there were good things about it but I think it was it was, it was working so hard to be an alternate superman mm. that he just kind of lost all its own identity which is a bit of a shame um there's Midsummer out next soon as well, new Ari Aster film. Right. Oh, yeah. I didn't enjoy Hereditary, so I'm not sure whether I'll enjoy M- mm. Midsommar. As, as, as I say horror is a bit of a hit and miss show with me. Yeah. Um <clears throat> So I think that pretty much covers all our um topics for today then, James. Um it's nice having you on for uh, Intelligent conversation for for a change.
1: Thank you for inviting
0: me. <laughs> so, um, have you got anything to plug? A, a Twitter handle, a website, a book on sale? Or... Uh,
1: no, no, I'm I'm off social media. Um, I've got a blog called It's Between Sympathy and Detachment at WordPress. I don't blog very often, but I do keep a, a comprehensive viewing diary of everything that I watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, check that out if you.
0: I keep a a list year by year of films I've seen to keep, just to keep track I'm up to 45 at the cinema this year
2: cool yeah
0: so practically spending my life there at the moment <laughs> and um, for me my twitter handle is at Nathan Major my website webcom and my book is now available on Amazon Mr Opinionated Volume 1 um, I hope you can buy a copy either on Kindle or in paperback uh, buy now beat the rush Um Thanks for listening and thanks for joining me, James. Thank you. And I shall see you all again soon.